Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Because you are self-conscious that you're being influenced. These fears and worries function as a protective force, but it was useful for me to misunderstand them. They're no longer protecting you in the way you thought that they were. I'm going to take it to the next level. Everybody listening to this, yesterday, I released some new music. So go listen to it. Useful Fiction, Global Heatwave EP. Hopefully you love it. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun putting it together. And gosh, this is the most like awful advertisement in the world. Just go listen to it. <laughs> you worked in you've worked in communication for under a decade and you start your ad with, hey, everyone, listen to this and then go straight into. I had a lot of fun putting it together, but, you know, it's it's whatever it. Yeah, go listen to it. And if you can, like if you're a Spotify person or a YouTube person or a TikTok person, follow Useful Fiction on all those because it helps like signal boost it and get the word out. But that's not the uh, that's not the occasion for us here today. So uh, I think I'm starting this week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What have you been learning during your time off of school? Yes. Well, OK. I. If you remember, and I'm sure everybody remembers because I've talked about it, I was doing that that independent study or like directed research. And there was one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So during that, there was one week that my professor gave me this uh, book to read. And I had heard of it before. I was aware of the concept, but I didn't have time to read it at the time. And because I already knew the concept i felt like you know if if there was anything i wasn't going to read it was going to be this because i already felt like i was somewhat aware of it so now that i'm on break i was like it, it'd be a good time to go back and read that and so that's what i did it is uh called the anxiety of influence by harold bloom came out in 1973 rich have you ever heard because it is after this book came out, it is kind of like a phrase. Have you ever heard of the anxiety of influence? I have not. Okay. Um, yeah, because like I had said, in kind of like art and writing, I mean, he writes this book about poetry, but it applies to a whole lot of things. And yeah, like I said, it did kind of become a phrase. But yeah, so it's the anxiety of influence came out in 1973. And it, if I am understanding correctly, itself became a very influential work, you know, uh, and it, it kind of changed a lot of the way we think about writing and creative stuff. And I'm setting it up that way because as I was reading it, some of it seemed, you know, I hate to say some of it seemed so obvious, but it was one of those things where you're like, oh, this, this already influenced the way that I think, even though I'd never read it before. And, and I don't know if I'm putting that into words quite correctly, but like, 
this book made such a big impact that even though I'm reading it for the first time, I'm already like kind of in the stream of thought. Maybe that's a better way yeah, you've, to put you've it. You've danced around that whether you've like heard it or absorbed it from another source or whether it's just influenced culture enough, you've engaged with the material somehow. Right. It's kind of like uh, the first time I listened to uh, Coldplay's Parachutes album, suddenly, like so many things made sense because the first time I listened to it was probably like only a, a couple of years ago. And that album probably came out in like 99 or something. So it had been out for a long time. And the first time I listened to that album, I was like, oh, this is the one that influenced everybody for about 10 years. Like all of this music, all of the music I heard growing up, they were all listening to Coldplay Parachutes and Coldplay Parachutes was kind of like the first one, or if not the first one, the big one that influenced all of that music. It was also kind of like a, the first time I saw, I don't know, shoot, what's that one Quentin Tarantino movie, the old one? Pulp Fiction. Have you ever seen that? Mm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had the same experience there where I grew up a little bit later than all that. And so I had seen all of the... I'd seen all of the works that Pulp Fiction influenced and I had even seen people do like I guess parodies on it on that sort of style but I had never seen the initial movie itself and so when I saw it I was like oh so much of this makes sense because I'm seeing like the original artifact that then stemmed out and influenced all these other people so that's not exactly what uh, Harold Bloom is talking about, but I am bringing it up this way because he starts the book off talking about influence. So before we get to the anxiety of influence, just influence and talking about that, you know, again, things that, that seem kind of obvious to us now that any poet or for that matter, any person who is like creative in what they're doing and probably a lot of other people too. We're all influenced by other people and influence is like inescapable. There really is no, you know, there's no person who is uninfluenced and to accept that, I guess sort of opens up the door for what he's going to talk about, which is the relationship between the influencer and the influenced. So am I making any sense? I'm, I'm kind of just starting off. No, I, I think I'm following you. Okay. You're making the you're making the general, like you're laying the foundation. Everyone, even if you don't think you're influenced by anything, like someone has influenced you to be influenced by that. Whether it's like, you know, I remember hearing a long time ago a story of somebody living in like the wilderness in Siberia for a long time. He was influenced to do that. And when he had children out there, like they were influenced by him to live out there. So like even the people who are 
running from influence are still influenced. Yeah. That's I've never heard of that. That's an interesting thought. And and he uh in the again in the intro to this book, he uses or he he sets out that he's going to use a lot of like Freudian language in terms of I guess like family psychology or family he might use the word battling. I don't I honestly don't remember. And also separately, like he, he's talking a lot about like the Oedipus complex, which if you're not familiar is Oedipus is like the son who's going to fight and overthrow the father. Uh, so, yeah, it's a whole lot of that sort of thing where, yeah, even out you're living out in the wilderness, like there's still no. No avoiding this dynamic, these dynamics that. I don't, whether they're psychological or whether they're something else. Uh, and yeah, so anyway, so that's influence. But the anxiety of influence is the idea that when you accept what influence is, or maybe a, a better way to say it would be when you admit that influence happens, then as the poet, you that stirs up anxiety in you because you are self-conscious that you're being influenced. But there's this sort of like artist complex of like, because you want to be original. Right. Right. And before, as I am understanding it before this book was written, influence was seen as a lot more of like a positive thing, you know, like, well, this person was inspired by that person that came before them or like they're, you know, this person was like in the school of that person. They were discipled by that person. I guess it was seen as a lot more of a positive thing. And what Harold Bloom points out is like, like, I think he's the one who kind of says, no, that doesn't produce a positive feeling. It produces anxiety. Because, yeah, like you said, you want to be original and you don't just want to be known as, oh, he's the new version of that. Or he's just he's copying that. Huh, I wonder what led about to that, like, change, you know, because I think we talked about this on an earlier podcast that the idea between like. You know, and like the ancient age having a mentor or a teacher or like the apprentice relationship. Um, and how I think that still probably exists in many professions, especially like more like um, like I think when it comes to like like our dad was a plumber, plumbing, welding, um, maybe even like baking to some regards, cooking. There's this idea of like, oh, I was trained here. I learned here. But in the creative arts there does seem to be that streak of like, I don't want to be influenced. I want to draw from my own unique creative wells. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember talking about that and he does address in the near the beginning of the book. He does address the reasons he thinks it changed. I know some of it had to do with like enlightenment philosophy, uh, but also he threw out a whole bunch of like French philosophers and stuff that it kind of went over my head, but yeah, yeah, no, but it is interesting. Cause it's like, 
again, like the family dynamic, which is a good analogy, I think, because it seems to be the same. Like, is it is it something psychological? Is it just a dynamic in and of itself where you put one person who goes before another and the person who comes later, the, the predecessor, um, you know, does it does it just naturally come about in relationships? So it's interesting. I don't know. But but yeah, so his idea is a that the idea that influence exists stirs up anxiety in a poet as they create. He gives throughout the book, and this is what the book is, is he's detailing six different, you know, different relationships or different. He calls it the life cycle. Like if you're struggling with the anxiety of influence, there's kind of six different ways it can go. And, uh, but I guess one of, or a couple of his big ideas are, uh, one of them is this, it's that the, the meaning of a poem is found in other poems. So this is kind of another thing that was going on. I don't know. You're probably, I mean, you would have no reason to be aware of like structuralist reading, but structuralism is like a, uh, another way of reading poetry or a text or anything that was coming about where it was like, okay, we're just going to remove the text and read it just as its own artifact. Like, Oh, I'm going to look at it on a page. You don't even have to tell me who the author is because it doesn't matter. I'm going to just look at the words and find the meaning in the words. And that theory I think was maybe rising to more prominence at the time and out of that is where Bloom comes in and says, like, no, we need to know not not only do we need to know the author, not only is the meaning of the poem found in the author, the meaning of the poem is actually found in other poems and in other author authors. And so there's this big sort of like, I don't know, networking that's going on or this big like interconnectivity that takes place. And with that. Like his idea is that every okay, so I, I'm still working through the book, but I think if I could sum it up where I'm at so far, he talks about that every poem is an intentional misreading or an intentional misunderstanding of another poem. So because of influence. Because of the anxiety of influence, when a poet is writing, it's almost as if they're not really even writing words out of themselves. They are writing a reaction against other poems and other poets. If that makes any sense. And I've got an example. So. No, I think it makes sense. Yeah. Like. Two weeks ago, I think it was, I was talking about uh, my aesthetic statement and genres and stuff. I think I think I gave the example of Radiohead, how when I was like a teenager, I thought that like darker music, more serious music was like better. 
And uh, I thought that also generally like pop music, quote unquote, was like bad. And if a lot of people liked it, it was bad. And so a lot of good artists were more underground or more serious or more weird. And honestly, still a lot of those things I still agree with. But I just had a very like childish cartoon version of that where it was like popular is good, you know, serious and weird is is or I'm sorry, I said that backwards, but you know what I mean? Uh, I thought more like serious, weird stuff was like the only way to make like good music or good art. And so then at the same time, I was, was the, I'm sorry, was the assumption there that was the assumption back then that like, because it's like popular music, like everyone's kind of making the same music or, you know, it's what's getting pushed out. So like the better stuff is probably still like, in the back of the musical wardrobe to use a really weird analogy. Um, I think it was. Yeah, honestly, I, I guess I don't know exactly where it comes from. I mean, obviously I think when you are a musician, for example, hopefully if you're a musician, you have good taste. And if you're 14, and you think you have good taste, then I think that kind of skews how you see other people and their taste. I'm trying to, I'm trying to not make myself look like a total snob. Uh, but also every 14 year old with their music. Yeah. Well also though, at the time, like music was a little different where radio was still a bigger thing. This was pre-internet and like pop music at the time was more separated than it is now like nowadays you can say this is for better for worse i think it's for better but like you could hear a song and you could like listen from across the room and be like i don't know if that's a pop song or a song that somebody made in their bedroom or a you know super expensive high produced song or you know like a lot of music because of the internet has kind of come into the same categories and the same palette and people listen to music differently. But yes, at the time it was different where like there was like top 40 stuff being pushed and that felt completely separate from all these like cool, interesting bands that I heard about, you know, just like heard whispers about and could look them up on MySpace and and listen to. So it was more separated and I think I just, I think that I just, uh, like, internalized that too much in, like I said, like, kind of like a cartoonish way where it was too simple. It was too black and white. But anyway, that, like, sets up the stage for when I was trying to, like, write songs and create my own music, I had the anxiety of influence for popular music. And again, you hear things like you hear that most songs are only three or four chords and a lot of songs can be played with the same three or four chords. And as a kid, you don't know that that's just that's what music is. That's the way music works. I didn't 
realize that. I thought that was like a bad thing. Like this is why pop music is awful is because it uses the same three or four chords. And so with the anxiety of influence, I would try to steer in the opposite direction and trying to be original. I wasn't really like playing music to use that verb. I wasn't really like writing music. I was trying to craft something that was specifically not. It was very adversarial. Like I'm going to write something that's not that. And that can be a good example of the anxiety of influence. That's one way that you can do it is you can just like split in the path and say, I'm going a completely different direction. And so then, sorry, I'm, I'm, taking too long with the story i'll speed it up but like around that same time again this is pre-internet but like in magazines and with my friends and stuff i knew that like radiohead that's like a cool band and so i would try to like download their music from the internet illegally and listen to it and there were certain songs that i liked but i also just didn't like it either like i i tried because I thought that uh, I thought that that's what I was supposed to like. But anyway, okay. So so here's my point. Radiohead. Then I came to realize I don't like them either, and I started to think like, well, they are just trying to be so serious. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to do what I was doing as a kid, where like they're not really writing anything out of artistic instinct. They're just trying to not be pop music and they're just trying to not. And so I, I kind of looked down on them. Uh, I came down to like really dislike Radiohead. And then with time, I, what started to happen is I started to realize the context that Radiohead was writing in. And like the new technology that was available at the time and the artists that they were listening to who inspired them and what was going on politically and all those sorts of things. And you start to realize like, oh, my bad judgment of them was without any context. It was just me listening to it in 2000 and I don't know, 13, whatever. But I didn't realize what they were reacting in and what they were living in all of this is a really long way to repeat uh harold bloom's point which is i was intentionally miss misunderstanding radiohead like i was not giving them the benefit of the doubt i had my reasons why i didn't like them and if i was being honest i probably could have admitted like some of the stuff i'm saying doesn't really make sense but it was useful for me to misunderstand them because then that gave me a platform to be different. And so this is one of the big ideas of, of Bloom is that you have to misunderstand whoever came before you because then that gives you justification to carve out your own space. And so it's actually useful to not give the benefit of the doubt uh, again. And that, that helps you carve out your space. Sorry. I'm, I'm really rambling around this one. I, 
Like I'm reading the book. It's no, a lot heavier than I was expecting. But yeah, you have any thoughts? Yeah. So why well, why is it that misinterpretation lets you carve out your own space? Because well, let me give another example. Like, I guess just what's a band? Um Coldplay. I I was already talking about them. As another hypothetical, if you're a band and you come out on the scene and you've got some big hits and you know, your song goes to number one, you're getting interviewed, it's going to go on TV or whatever. And the interview interviewer asks you like, where do you get your ideas? And you say, bro, I just love Coldplay. Like I listen to Coldplay all day. And I think that's where I get my ideas. Like, obviously that's super corny. Even if you genuinely, genuinely love another artist, you kind of have to be cool and you kind of have to like, you know, not, totally gush over them because you can't just come out and say like, okay. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a musician and I kind of just am doing the whole cold play thing. So I guess if you think about that, that kind of answers your question of like, why do you have to misunderstand the people who came before you? Well, because you have to have a reason it's because you've been influenced, but you're not supposed to say that, or you have anxiety about saying that. And so, therefore, you have to skew what came before you so that you can justify your own existence. Does that answer hmm. it? I, I Yes. I guess I can understand that argument. I do also think, though, that there's like, I wonder if you're able to hold that sort of idea in like congruence. I'm, I'm not even sure if congruence is the right word, but essentially on one hand, being able to say to yourself, these are the things that I, that influence me. And these are the things that are, that I like, because I think, I think artistically, I'm not sure I, I don't do much music, but I think artistically that would give you a lot of, that would fuel your inspiration, being able to, to point at what you like in other people's stuff would allow you to then move in that direction and explore more in that direction and hopefully kind of make more music that you like. But at the same time, I see the argument he's making too. Like you can't just like get into like a wired interview and say like, oh yeah, I just try to do what this person does because then everyone's going to start being like, uh, here's where they stole this person's chord progression in their own song and here's where their lyrics copy this person's lyrics yeah yeah i i actually agree i don't know that he does but i i do think and really this is what i think we were talking about two weeks ago with my like aesthetic statement about genre i do think that there's like a a way to do it where you're saying this is the genre that I'm in, or this is like the camp that I'm in and I'm going to take it to the next level. I think that's maybe a more level headed way to do it as opposed to, yeah, either of the extremes you said, which is like thinking you're original because you're not, or just like straight out copying uh, and like, unashamedly doing that and and if you did that like you probably aren't gonna make it anyway like he he talks about 
in this book, uh, strong writers and weak writers. And the way he categorizes that is like a strong writer. You don't talk about the person who came before them. Whereas a weak writer, you understand them in the context of who came before them. So like, in other words, I'm trying to think if, uh, <laughs> okay, let's do a, let's do a famous coming along nicely sports analogy, uh, that always go over oh, so yes. well. So I'm not everybody like this is going to be awful, but just forgive me in advance. But from like standing far back, there are certain like huge NBA players who like loom so large who I would equate to what Bloom calls a strong writer. Like there's Michael Jordan, there's LeBron, there's Steph Curry and these people. Well, okay. So I guess, well, no, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, These people, these players have, they're, they're strong in the sense that you understand them on their own. Like, Steph Curry is just playing a different game than Michael Jordan did. And so you can, you know, people do have conversations about like, who's the best player of all time, but there are certain players who like, it just doesn't make sense to compare them. And it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a, you're doing something different thing. But then there are other players who you'll be watching a game and you're like, who's that guy on the court? And the announcer is talking about like, oh yeah, they just signed him from this school. He's kind of like the next, you know, LeBron, or he's like the next whatever, you know? And those are like what Bloom would call weak writers, because at least so far, they haven't made a name for themselves that casts the shadow. They're just the next version of blank Kobe whoever uh and so that's kind of the difference is like if you if you own up too much to your influences and if you say like if you make it really explicit I'm just trying to do what these people did you're really setting yourself up to fail because you can never get bigger than them like you kind of have to and this goes back to what I was saying Like you have to, even if you, even if you own up to them as your influence, you have to make yourself different somehow because otherwise, like, why are you there? I think the other example too, like, I think that makes, yeah. Wait, so let me, let me just see if I'm tracking, um, going back to the sports analogy, uh, LeBron, he's out in the court, Michael Jordan. They're on the court and they are a primetime documentary anytime they play. The stuff they're doing, the way they're impacting the game, next level. But guy they bring in during the third quarter who's like just decent, like he's a good component in the team. So like the ballads aren't being sung about. You know, he's not getting like a I don't know what people watch. He's not getting an ESPN special just because he's solid, you know, right in the sports world. You've got to be like extraordinary. So. Linking that to creative. Like writing, you want to be this like prolific, uninspired 
I guess knowing what I mean by uninspired, like an influenced writer who's just creating these stories and these lyrics and these poems, like just from your own mind, because then that sets you apart as this creative, like you're this creative genius. You're not inspired. Um, but I think like, that's just really interesting to me too. Cause I know maybe it's not perfect because the thing that the sports analogy is like when LeBron first started playing, he just, he got categorized in the same group as like, is he the new Michael Jordan? Who's better him or Michael Jordan? So I, I feel like being linked to other people who are great, who are influencers is like valuable for the career of, I'm going to say anybody without thinking it through, but I feel like it could only be, it could be good to have your work linked to somebody else who's better or at least at the same level as what you do because it helps more people grasp on the idea of like oh well i like this this thing so i should like this thing well yeah no definitely and i was i was waiting to say this because like you bring up that yeah from a young age lebron was linked to jordan but what number was on lebron's jersey you know, he picked Michael Jordan's number. And so mm. right out of the gate as a young person, I think what you're saying is true, which is if you're great and if you've if you're able to back it up that you're great, then, yeah, you can pick Michael Jordan's number. And I don't I don't know how people read that. I think you can read that as like an innocent thing like oh my gosh michael jordan's my hero so i want to pick his number you can read that as like a cocky thing like i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna take his number and make it mine but that like the anxiety of influence well maybe let me let me say it this way i think that lebron at age like 17 or whatever when he picked that number did not have the anxiety of influence because what mm. the anxiety of influence would be would be I'm you wouldn't pick that number that is associated with the greatest player of all time. But maybe I know I don't know, you could play it out either way. Maybe it helped him to pick that number, maybe it didn't, because now that he's older in his career and like literally maybe about ready to retire. Once he's gone, because he picked that number and because he picked to try to follow in the footsteps of Jordan, like, did you have to ask the question, did he win? Because, like, in the whole, like, Oedipus complex and Oedipus story, like, it's about killing the father to make space for you you know it's not just like oh we all grow up and we're like a healthy functioning family and so yeah i guess i don't know exactly what i'm asking but but when you when you come out and own your who you're influenced by that might shoot you in the foot later in life because you have to separate yourself from them. And like, 
for LeBron, he's caught between a rock and a hard place because you can't come out and say like MJ sucks. I'm way better than him. What are you guys even talking about? Because earlier in your career, you kind of rode off of him. And so these are, these are some of the ways that it can play out. Like I said, Bloom, he has six different like relationships or life cycles or however he would classify them that are like, you can do it this way. You can do it that way. You can, uh, if you, if you're struggling with this anxiety, you can go left or right or up or down. It's not like there's just one way it can play out, but it is, it's almost like game theory in a sense. So it is just a very interesting, uh, interesting idea that, like I said, kind of seems obvious but when you play it out it isn't always obvious but i want to yeah because you go ahead because i'm sorry because you're saying that the thing with the oedipus conflict sorry just making sure i follow the thing with the oedipus oedipus complex is that like if you're going to say like oh i'm influenced by this person then you're essentially cap you're kind of soft capping yourself you will only be someone who's under in that person's shadow it'll be like well if you like this person you might also like this person unless you force yourself to then become and this is the whole like killing the father thing you have to then outshine the person who originally influenced you if you're going to like link yourself in that regard is that kind of what you're saying if you follow the Oedipus example, and I'm not saying I believe this, but if you follow it to its conclusion, either you're going to when you cast yourself in somebody's shadow, either you're going to stay in their shadow or you're going to kill them and you're going to cast the new shadow. In that example, like there's no middle ground, and I kind of agree with what we were saying earlier, like in reality, there are probably ways to go about it. But that's definitely the risk that you run and you can definitely put yourself into some weird dynamics that it's like. It's it's strange to navigate. But interesting. Yeah, I did want to I'm taking a long time, so I did want to wrap it up and let you give your uh, update. What what do you gosh? What a half-hearted uh, transition. <laughs> I want you to give your update. So what do you got going on? What have on? you been learning this week? <laughs> we're out of school, you know? We're we're not as uh we're not as uh, professional and cut as normal. Um so I am um I am in my treatment class. So this class is all about like Specifically, the treatment of mental disorders. Um, so, man, since we've last talked, I think I've gone over like generalized anxiety. And this week I learned a lot about like trauma. Um, there is there's a week on depression. We did like a suicide assessment week. Um, but I thought what might be interesting to talk about in the remainder of our time is a uh, treatment modality I learned during the assessment week for like generalized anxiety um, called do, 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 do. Oh, the intolerance of uncertainty model. So it is a offshoot of CBT, 
um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is an evidence-based practice. Um, it's been like shown and proven to be effective and more effective than just like normal, you know, normal treatment. Um, but the kind of the the ethos, I don't know if I'm using that word right, of this treatment, what it's kind of built on on its like foundation is that a client with generalized anxiety and worries and fears that these fears and worries function in that person's life as a protective force, um, whether it is actually protecting or not, like that's a whole other question, but they started as a protective force to keep the client from um, engaging in activities that they'll, they'll fail in uh, to keep the client from getting into situations that might harm them. Um, so essentially like the client's worries at one point, uh, served a function of like actually helping the client. So you now, which I tend to, I tend to like, uh, a model of treatment that views like people as having, um, even people who are going through something difficult like trauma or like anxiety, like not that those things are good and healthy, like not that trauma is healthy, but the person who is experiencing trauma or has like gone through a traumatic experience or who has generalized anxiety, like they are still trying to cope somehow that their body, that their system is still trying to somehow cope positively. Now, whether that's still happening or not, um, like that's for like your therapeutic relationship to kind of determine. Um, but that those are just the type of models I appreciate, which is why I appreciated the um, the intolerance of uncertainty model, because it looks at the person who is anxious, who is worried, who is scared and doesn't like disrespect them or say like, hey, you are like, we've got to change the whole way you think we've got to change the whole way you act because like, Essentially, you're just like thinking and acting wrong. Not that that's what the other therapies are saying or the other theories are saying by any means. Um, that's just how it kind of can feel to me. Like the intolerance of uncertainty model says like, hey, you have learned to be cautious. You've learned to like to trust when you worry about something. You've learned like for whatever reason, like you've learned these things to like protect yourself from something. Um, but now these worries are like, they are either unwarranted or they're no longer protecting you in the way you thought that they were like a new system. We might need a new system in order to help you move forward and a lot of treatment. Okay. So does that make, does that make sense? Are we following? Yes. Uh, so if, if I'm getting it right. Like, according to this theory or this model, the anxieties or the fears started out as like protective and maybe either. Okay, so here's my question. Is it that the threat isn't there anymore? Like what changed to make these anxieties no longer protective and just like 
I guess, impeding? Um, good question. That is probably a very case by case answer to that question. Um, but like, okay, I guess looking at it this way, we all have certain anxieties and fears, right? Um, like I know for me, one conversation I'd always have with people whenever I was doing a lot of stuff on stages or speaking in front of people is that people would always say like, oh, how are you not like nervous? I would be so nervous. Um, and I too was also nervous. Like I had like times in my life where I was very nervous, but I also had moments where I was literally without thinking about it, just thrown into situations of having to perform or embarrass myself in front of like my entire school or like doing things at church. And by doing that through that exposure, I got to see the other side of it where what was anxiety and nervousness leading up to the moment of me having to embarrass myself. Like I got to see that on the other side of it, I survived, you know, that there sure there might've been some consequences or stuff like that. But I also got to see like the, on the other side, I still like live and I still have friends and people don't talk about, you know, those moments for more than like a week. So by having that experience, it helped me next time that I approached those anxieties to say like, oh, okay, I don't have to be as anxious. Like, whereas before the anxieties were trying to protect me from isolation and embarrassment and people making fun of me because I've maybe I've had experiences of that in the past or have seen somebody else perform and bomb and people make fun of them. So I'm, I'm cataloging these things. It's like a survival instinct. Whereas before that was my that was where my anxieties and worries were influenced by. Now I had other experiences that could show me like, oh, those anxieties and worries like aren't necessarily true. Yeah. Um, so that, then I became a more it became a more balanced thing of like, well, if I'm going to be in front of people, I probably shouldn't just wing it. But I also know that like I'll survive. So I guess in the same regard. Um, it really depends on what the influence and what the kind of purpose of these anxieties are for generalized anxiety. We're already kind of assuming that these worries are. I want to say unwarranted, but at least excessive. The anxiety, the fear, the worry is excessive in some regard. Um, so in in this model, <clears throat> in the intolerance of uncertainty model, um, I think that there's this natural like lean towards the client not even just in the name the client not wanting to tolerate the not knowing how something's going to to pan out mm -hmm. and so that that fear and anxiety that comes from um a source of worry a source of anxiety like pushes the client it, it's kind of like a warning bell like hey you don't know how this is going to go hey you don't know i don't even know if i'm answering your question at this point yeah um, you are I'm just kind of on a tangent. Okay. So the client's thinking, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm going to keep saying you. It's the anxiety speaking to the client. You don't know how this is going to go. You don't know how this is going to turn out. And because of that, there is risk 
of embarrassment. There is risk of danger. There is risk of you feeling foolish. There is risk of even just uncomfortable feelings um, because there might be some emotional regulation difficulties here where even just feeling um, uncomfortable might be something to be protected from. So because you don't know how these things are going to go, you should just avoid situations that make you feel like uncomfortable or you should avoid these certain things. Um, so for whatever reason that person learned it, like obviously if that's how you approach every situation, like I can understand not wanting to speak publicly in front of people, but there's probably going to be some time in your life where you have to speak in front of people. Um, it might not be a crowd of 50. It might be a crowd of 10. It might be a crowd of five. It might be a crowd of three. It might be one other person. Like there's going to be times where you have to share an opinion. And if you always, of like, if you always pull away from those situations because of these fears and anxieties, that's where it kind of moves from this protective force of like, Hey, make sure you don't embarrass yourself to a more destructive force of now robbing you from all of these um these experiences so it's kind of like helping the person to process that uh, and understand those thoughts so the whole treatment model it's very cbt it's like hey why do you feel that way okay now we understand why you feel that way and the thoughts that influence those feelings let's work on changing those cognitions and part of us learning how to change those cognitions is by changing behaviors so let's start to expose you to these things in like controlled doses. I was going to um, say part of the model would before you started this, I was almost I was going to say, like, this almost makes me think it's going in like an exposure therapy direction. Yeah, um, so there is there is a certain amount of exposure therapy that that takes place as part of this model. Um, it might start as like cognitive exposure i think when i was writing for one of my classes like a like a fake make like a fake treatment for a fake client um cognitive cognitive exposure was a part of my um way of treating the client like it started through them just picturing i forget what the client was going through but it's kind of this idea of like hey picture picture the thing that's making you anxious the the situation whatever picture it uh, imagine it. Why is it making you anxious? What are people in this situation saying about you? And then you also make them mirror the positive with or the negative with positive. So like going back to this whole like stage fright scenario, person can't speak in front of crowds of any size, including small ones. Um, they might be thinking they're going to think I'm stupid. They're going to think I look weird. They're going to think like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but they also have to then challenge those negative cognitions with like positive ones. Like people might think that I, I have thought through my points. Well, people might think that, you know, maybe my outfit looks good. People might think. And so you kind of just get them to stop autopilot trusting what they would always trust as a survival response, which is anxiety and fear and start to challenge those thoughts with positive thoughts um work through and imagine what it would be like to speak in front of people and then progressively from there maybe then you'd have them just like 
I mean, obviously they're kind of speaking to the counselor, but maybe even just like presenting to the counselor would be a big deal. Maybe you have them record themselves presenting um, because sometimes the camera feels like a million people. So maybe they just have to record themselves and watch it um, to see like how that goes. Maybe they record themselves and show the recording to someone, or maybe they present in front of a group of one person, but you kind of lead them up to it through homework assignments as you're also helping give them just education on like calming techniques or maybe even mindfulness-based techniques so they can understand their body in the moment and let kind of those emotions and worries and survival instincts kind of pass as time goes on. Um, Relaxation techniques. So just, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting how, like I said, I, I like a model that assumes that people are trying to do what they know to be healthy, even if it doesn't work. Um, because I feel like that gives you a lot more leeway to say like, hey, you're when you assume that the person is doing the best they know how to survive, I feel like it just leads to a stronger therapeutic alliance and it helps you uncover more about the client to help them um, and like naturally draws on the client's like strengths, you know? Yeah. Like if someone's anxious about embarrassing themselves, maybe they're just very perceptive. Maybe they're just, they have a lot of empathy and they can understand how people feel. Like those are great strengths that actually could help a public speaker to connect with their audience. If they feel like they can understand how the crowd feels, that lets them connect with it. Like, however, currently that strength is being turned into a weakness of hyper fixating on, well, the crowd might think this about me or some people in the crowd might feel like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And they're letting those worries and fears like air quote, protect them from being made fun of from being, um, from looking foolish by just refusing to interact at all with the, uh, stimuli that's causing them stress. So just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Like even when you were just laying it out at the beginning, like, that it it trusts that you know there's not something wrong with the client but they have maybe like a somewhat logical or rational or justified anxiety and it's just gotten like out of order or it's it's taking up more space than it should but yeah that seems like a very like dignified way to think about it for clients uh i'm sorry what did it's the it's the what's the name of this something of uncertainty so it's uh it's a branch of cognitive behavioral therapy called the intolerance of uncertainty model okay yeah that's interesting i'm trying to think of it in like the just the context of of my own life too cuz there are like right now I'm sending out a bunch of uh, essays and stuff to try to get in different, get published in different journals and whatnot. And it's the kind of thing that uh, it's the kind of thing that you might send something out to 40 places and get rejected like 39 times. It's like that kind of ratio. 
And so I think that knowing that, uh, no, like I think going into it, like when I'm sending these emails out, I'm sending it out almost certain that I'm going to get rejected. And that makes it way easier than if I was uncertain. Does that make any, I don't know if, if what I'm saying really connects to what you're saying so well, but like, there's almost like a, a rationalization that can take something that's very like anxiety inducing and almost rationalize it. I, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. No, I think that that's like a, yeah, you kind of use that as a good like coping mechanism. So someone might view that and say, I'm not going to send anything out because to be rejected is terrible. Like to be rejected, to have my work rejected would mean that like I failed in some regard. But by you kind of knowing like, hey, this is part of the process. This is what people go through. You send out your work and it's going to get rejected. But, you know, that's not the case of like every single person out there. That knowledge helps you to I can't think of the word right now, um, but that knowledge helps like encourage you to continue sending stuff out because you know like it's part of the process the failure isn't a specific failure of you and your writing it is a like failure of it's not even failure failure might, might not might not be the right word but it's not that like tim's writing is bad it's that this is part of the process of a writer and of sending works out is that there will be 39 out of 40 who will receive your writing and like turn you down. But that's because like, that's what this stage of the process is. Whereas for someone maybe who has like generalized anxiety disorder, they would say, well, if I'm not good enough to get accepted, like that is a harmful emotion. That is a harmful process. So I will just save myself from the rejection by never submitting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think, too, like for me, that is something that I tell myself, I guess, as somewhat of a defense mechanism, but I don't think I'm coping in the sense of like the real like negative sense of the term. I think that I'm thankful that I've heard a lot of really good writers say, oh, like, no, this is just the way it is. Like, you're going to get rejected. Because, like, if I didn't have that knowledge and I just thought it's a 50-50 shot, hopefully they like me, but I didn't know the way that, like, kind of the industry works, then, yeah, those rejections would sting so much more. But what I'm saying is, like, I'm not sending it out like, well, they're going to reject me. Better not get my hopes up because, like, no, I'm still hoping that I get it. But thankfully, I have some mm -hmm. I've I've been told some knowledge that gives me more certainty so yeah i don't know i i feel like i'm kind of rambling on your point i was trying to connect it but no 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 it does it does make sense and i think to even to kind of what you were saying earlier um your extra knowledge of how the industry works helps you cope um and if someone is just kind of out there doing this without that kind of education um and receiving that failure without that knowledge, they might they might quit sooner 
because seeing those letters come back over and over again of like, hey, I'm sorry, we're not interested. We're not interested in your work at this time. Like seeing those letters come back without that knowledge might develop in them a new coping strategy, not a healthy one, but a new coping strategy of, you know, people don't like my writing. So I should either give up or stop sharing it with people. Like I should stop sharing it, stop sending it to publishers, stop using it as material for like references because I'm learning in a vacuum without this other knowledge like that people aren't liking it. That's harmful to me. So I'm going to stop. Whereas you with, with the knowledge of how the industry works, like you kind of understand the push and pull of it. So it's not as it's not a harmful thing to you. It's just part of the process. So do you think that this could be a form of therapy that you could see yourself doing? Cause you kind of have to like select, right? Um, yeah, it it's like it's a branch of CBT. Mm, true. So I feel like like cognitive behavioral therapy is something I'm gonna have to add to my tool belt. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. I've I was very like uninterested in CBT, but at the same time, like I think I've kind of grown over that. Um, but yeah, I think of the CBT models. I mean, this specifically is an evidence pre- evidence based practice for like generalized anxiety. So I can't like make this oh. shoe fit every case. Yeah. Um, but I think it. Yeah, I think it it is very person centered. So I think that using, if I ever get clients with generalized anxiety, which I think is one of the number one things people present for, um. I would love to walk them through this treatment or at least use this treatment as a lens at which I look at my client as I take them through other treatments, Um, because I think it helps you feel. I mean, going to therapy already kind of makes you feel as if like, well, there's something wrong with me that I got to go get fixed. Um, But if the person who's like helping you like heal is able to look at things that are dysfunctions and say, I can see from uh, I can see how you were trying to do something good with this. Um, that points to the good in the person that the person isn't fully broken. They they just have like a a strategy that isn't good. And by pointing even at like, hey, I can see why you went about it this way and why you tried to protect yourself this way. That's that I think gives the client a big sense of efficacy because like, Hey, if you tried this to protect yourself and you kind of protected yourself it, from a lot of regards, like once you learn this new tool, you'll be great, which gives a lot of momentum for the end of the, you know, to continue to work towards the process of, of growth and recovery. Yeah. Hmm. I was going to try to do a, cause you're talking about generalized anxiety. I was going to try to, Connect it to the anxiety of influence, but I I don't really think it's there. Mm, we could probably force something, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's a if it's a healthy force. Yeah, I don't think it is. Because I think that uh, with the anxiety of influence, it is like a you know we're not talking about clinical anxiety. We're talking about an emotion that drives people actually to be better writers and more creative and all that sort of thing. Uh, But it's 
not really the same kind of anxiety that like you would be talking about, which is not. Uh, yeah, I think any any attempt to connect the two might be a little. Uh, maybe uh, with the best intentions, just not not helpful. I'm sure we'll think of something as soon as we get off. Probably. <laughs> that's how it'll work. It'll be like, oh, that's that would be the perfect way of linking them. But I guess since we can't end it there, we can end it here. Everybody go stream Useful Fiction, Global Heatwave EP, Spotify, YouTube, TikTok. Go follow. And uh, yeah, have a great day. <laughs> Signing off. Have a great day. <laughs> And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you guys on the next one.